Hi, I'm Gianna Volpe, and thank you for listening to The Heart of the East End on WLIWFM, the show where we get to the heart of any matter at hand with folks from all walks of life on Long Island's only local NPR radio station. We stream online at WLIW.org radio and welcome your comments, questions, and collaborations of all kinds on The Heart of the East End. Live from the WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York, I'm Gianna Volpe on Long Island's only NPR radio station. Major pharmacies on Long Island, like CVS and Walgreens, began administering the new COVID-19 booster shot yesterday, with other health care systems set to have doses available by next week at the latest. Bart Jones reports on Newsday.com that the new booster attacks the original COVID virus and the BA4 and BA5 subvariants of the Omicron variant, which are causing most current infections. Moderna's vaccine is for anyone 18 and older, while Pfizer's version is for anyone 12 and above. New York Governor Kathy Hochul kicked off a campaign to encourage people to get the shot by getting one herself Wednesday at the end of a news conference in East Harlem. Some CVS stores on Long Island had appointments available yesterday, according to the company's website. A spokesperson could not say how many doses the company obtained for the region or uh, how many were administered. Walgreens also had appointments available, according to its website. Northwell Health received a shipment of the Moderna vaccine uh, Tuesday night and hoped to start administering shots in doctors' offices and hospitals by late this week or early next week, according to Dr. Matthew Harris, medical director of Northwell's vaccine program. The healthcare system, the largest in New York State, was expected uh, a shipment of Pfizer vaccines sometime Wednesday, he said. After that, uh, Harris said the process of getting shots into arms should move quickly. Uh, He said he didn't expect it to be a heavy lift um, and added that he hopes there's a greater uptake with this booster than we've seen with previous vaccination efforts. Quote, I think we're all concerned about a significant surge. The bivalent vaccine seems very promising, end quote. Toward that end, Suffolk County did receive 200 doses of the updated Moderna and Pfizer boosters and plans to administer them at the H. Lee Denison Building in Hopog next Monday and Thursday from 1 to 5 p.m. Governor Hochul and Dr. Mary Bassett, the New York State Health Commissioner, urged people to get the new shot because it is highly effective at preventing serious illness, hospitalization, or death. Looking east, the Sag Harbor School Board will move forward with a plan to purchase five properties across from the Pearson Middle High School with hopes of using it to create an athletic complex for the district. Kaylin Riley reports on 27East.com that the board also agreed to hold off on plans to finalize a deal for a $13.5 million capital improvement project at Mashashamuit Park, but officials said that improving athletic facilities at the park to some degree would still be pursued. At a special meeting Tuesday night, the Sag Harbor School Board voted unanimously to approve a contract of sale with Marsden Street Property LLC for the purchase of a roughly three-quarter acre lot at 12 Marsden Street across the street from Pearson for a price of $700,000. That purchase will be made using capital reserve funds, specifically from the the district's Facilities Improvement Capital Reserve Fund and will be subject to voter approval via referendum. 
As per usual, Sag Harbor School Board President Sandy Cruel signed the agreement at the end of the short meeting and the board also approved plans for a vote on November 3 on whether to authorize the use of the funds. Superintendent Nichols announced at the meeting that the district will also seek to purchase four other adjacent lots on the street using capital reserve funds and money from the Southampton Town Community Preservation Fund. And finally, Riverhead Town will enter into an agreement with Suffolk County Water Authority to have the authority uh, provide public water to an area of Manorville the town water district has been unable to serve. Denise Civiletti reports on RiverheadLocal.com that the agreement between, between the town and the water authority comes ahead of a looming deadline for New York State water infrastructure grant applications. The agreement is seen as necessary to enhance the town's chances to obtain state funding that will make the water main extension feasible. The state in the last round of funding did not fund Riverhead's application for a grant to help the town water district extend a water main to Manorville. They did, however, obtain $3.5 million in congressionally directed federal funding for extensions to Manorville and the adjacent River Road area of Calverton. But without state assistance, the project, which now carries a price tag of nearly $9.5 million, remained cost prohibitive. The uh, Water Authority was able to secure funding from both Fed, federal and state sources to help underwrite the cost of its extension to the Brookhaven portion of the Manorville area. But the extension of the Riverhead portion of the Manorville area remains in question. Both the town and the Suffolk County Water Authority will apply for state funding to support the project. In the agreement authorized by the town board yesterday, Riverhead will pay a proportionate share of the congressionally directed funding for the Manorville water main extension. Whether or not the town obtains state grant funding, the town will also pay a proportionate share of the state grant funds toward the cost of the extension to the Manorville area. In the event Riverhead receives full funding for the project within six months of the agreement, the town water district will be able to purchase the extension from the Water Authority, which will support the town district's permit application for the extension. Geez, I wish I had shortened that news item. All right, reading the weather in East Hampton in honor of our first guest this morning, Spencer Schneider, joining us at the bottom of the hour to talk about his book, Manhattan Cult Story, My Unbelievable True Story of Sex, Crime, Chaos, and Survival, looking like a mostly sunny Thursday with a high near 75 degrees northeast wind, 9 to 11 miles per hour, partly cloudy tonight with a low around 61 northeast wind, 7 to 10 miles per hour. Right now, it's 65 degrees. We've got the Joiner's edition of The Heart, leading with some cult tracks just because of the title of the book. We've got Blue Oyster Colts burning for you, Guster's Red Oyster Colts, Living Colors Colts of Personality, and then Brady Sosamans join a cult from the Lamentations EP of 2021. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Blue Oyster Colts, and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM.
Just a few drops away, you never have to change. You're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM, 88.3 on the FM dial throughout eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in central and western Suffolk, streaming online to wherever you are at WLIW.org slash radio. Dream. 
That's just the way things go. Don't let your feet turn cold. Oh, my child, just go. Join the cold. Brady Soseman leading us to the bottom of the nine o'clock hour on Thursday morning, just after midnight, if you're listening to the replay. And that means it's time for our Thoughtful Thursday segment underwritten by Green Hill Kitchen. 
School may have started up again this week, but there's another school, the Odyssey Study Group, that hasn't taken a break in decades, even after its leader, Sharon Gans, died from COVID in January 2021. She's buried in East Hampton, where our first guest this morning, Spencer Schneider, a former member of that group, also lives. He's the author of this summer's Manhattan cult story, My Unbelievable True Story of Sex, Crimes, Chaos, and Survival. Uh, welcome to the heart, Spencer. Nice to be here, Gianna. So you also live in East Hampton, which, <clears throat> excuse me, is also where we met at Authors' Night this summer. How was that event for you? Uh, it was great. Well, the highlight was to meet you, really, because I'm such a fan of your show and of this station and um I enjoyed meeting you and all of the other celebrities that were there. It was great. Did you have, how was the response to the book? Great. I sold, I think, every copy, maybe but a few. And um, I was very surprised at the reception and um, delighted that, you know, uh, could help the East Hampton Library. It's a great event and a great um, resource. I wrote a lot of the book in the library, actually. I am not surprised at all by that. And, and and when? So, you know, Sharon dies last January. Your book comes out this July. Did her death have uh, anything to do with your feeling and an ability to open up? Not really. Um, I, um, I had written the book. I was planning on publishing it anyway. Um, I hadn't had a publisher yet. But no, it, it didn't affect it because, you know, my plan from the beginning was to, you know, expose this group because it's very secretive. Right. And um, that is kind of, you know, was really the impetus, among other things. You know, I've watched, I, I watch a little too much Netflix, and I, I see that invisibility is is sort of a core of a lot of of, of groups, uh, and, and it helps uh, to keep the group. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of things that I see that are similarities. One is intermarrying of, of followers um, the secrecy uh, when it comes to um, some similarities I see between school and Scientology, of course, one absolutely being Kalispell, Montana, where Sharon's complex was and was where L. Ron Hubbard grew up. Uh, but also there was a sharing of of hatred of, of modern psychology. Uh, why was therapy seen as as problematic in school uh, does it have to do, do you think it has to do with uh, sort of a deprogramming from uh, the philosophies or or is it something else? Oh, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, the simple answer is, uh, you know, people in, in therapy are inclined to talk about everything in their life. And when you're involved in this group, um, which, like you say, is very secretive and really just involved going to classes twice a week. And it was people like me. I'm a lawyer, and it was like other professionals and, and whatnot. It was a very unusual group. That, again, that's under the radar. People don't know about it. Targeted um, people it targeted people and, with money, really. Correct. I mean, that was her main goal was it was a business. You know, um, there were a few hundred of us at any given time. Probably uh, several thousand have passed in and out of the group through the years. But – you know, if you're in therapy, you're going to talk about what's going on in your life. And so that would break the rule of of, um, of uh, secrecy that Sharon wanted because she had a very, very checkered past with her husband, extremely checkered. And if you had known about that, 
passed, you would never have stepped foot in that room. And I didn't know about it. And that was part of the allure, this whole sort of mystery that they had. Um, so that, and, and, you know, the other, you're right. You know, they did, there was this, um, uh, you know, disdain for modern everything. Um, and that included modern psychology. So yeah, you're right on that point. Absolutely. Oh, I do want to make sure we also start from a space of non-judgment. I'm sure the, the word cult gets people up in arms, and I'm sure it would have for you, Spencer, if you were hearing it associated with school when you were active. I got really thoughtful about the word in, in the way that cult is sort of like the word weed in an in, in an eye of the beholder kind of way, since a weed is simply an unwanted flower, so a rose can be a weed uh, if it's not wanted, the way many organizations can be fit into the cult category that aren't usually associated, and, and one could certainly argue school was not a cult because it was not, at least not in text, overtly centered around one person or object. But that's uh, not what we're here to do, and we're here to listen to you, uh, who wrote about the subjugation, humiliation, and exploitation you experienced in the 23 years you were in school. And and, and if you can talk from that experience, um, though it might not have been stated in text, how was uh, Sharon at the top of all this, and how was it really centered around her? Yeah, I mean, uh, I like that song, you know, Cult of Personality. Um, when you're involved in, in a group um, uh, like this, uh, you know, that's the last thing you're thinking, and they, they spent a lot of time convincing us that it was not anything like the cult. So let's stay away from the cult word because I agree very loaded word and it really doesn't necessarily mean anything because people call like religion a cult and i don't think it is i mean what what really it, it, it involved and i think what this group did do and i think the issue really was was people were exploited and not given what they were uh, seeking um and so it ends up being a fraudulent situation and, and a bit um, like sleight of, it's, it's more really like a, problem. it's like a sleight of hand because it's saying, oh, you know, uh, you're, you're looking, you're looking for this. And meanwhile, uh, siphoning small bits of money. Uh, I saw another similarity between oh. Scientology in the text. You know, you need, you need to buy books in order uh, to continue. There's, there's tuition. Um, right. You know, I right. think. I think what I was most surprised about watching, you know, uh, documentaries of all, all, all sorts was how easy it seemed to be for people to allow even relative strangers at times to lead themselves and even family members down uh, paths of, of things that are, are sort of unbelievable, at, at times entirely enslaving them or dismantling their lives. The crux seems to be an incremental upping of the ante, shall we say, the frog being boiled alive in hot water because of a slowly rising heat. And that certainly seemed to be the way that you found yourself at school. Since you were someone who was a recruiter, can you talk about uh, how scripted all of this is and about the, the similarities between what got you in the door was really part of the way that that anyone goes through the door in the beginning. Right. This is, a, again, really great question. Um, it was entirely scripted, and the number was, exactly as you say, you were, you know, we would meet strangers, 
we were, you know, this is the way uh, people were recruited. And it goes on today. And so I'm saying this so that folks out there um, are, are mindful of it. I'm not saying don't meet strangers or make friendships, but that's what we we created. Um, we met people um, really anywhere, subways, <laughs> um, bookstores, you know, the library, uh, you know, at, 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 at anywhere, you know, coffee shop, anywhere, and would slowly begin, you know, meet strangers and, and slowly create friendships with them. And it was more based upon, you know, talking about current events and philosophy and deeper things than you normally would talk about and people's desires and whatnot. And we would know if people were, you know, looking for something or vulnerable in mm. tough parts in their life and try to fill that void. And um, that's a wonderful thing to do for someone. It really is. And it's a wonderful thing to have that done. But we were never open about why we were befriending them because ultimately after gaining their trust, trust we would invite them to attend the group, which also sounded very, you know, innocuous. But through the time, it did become one of exploitation, and the exploitation involved, you know, giving a, a good deal of money, right. um, doing free labor for the leaders, and also being subjected to, you know, control of, their, of your life at the whim of the leader. So that's an unhealthy uh, uh, situation and a hallmark of cults, the, the exploitation part. You know, the, the time part, uh, in addition to the, you know, it's funny because when you, when you looked at the, at the money angle, and then, and then if you know right. anything about the financial obligations of, of some uh, folks in Scientology, you're like, oh, this was fair, fairly reasonable. Although I do remember that one right. uh, gentleman that, that gave up his $20,000 um, uh, prom- or promotion or, or, or bonus that he got from work. But uh, the time element blew me away. When I when I read about the Christmas celebration and what you, you ended that at, what, 6 a.m. the next morning? I, I forget what right. it was. But I was blown away right. by these the celebrations and, and just the, the, the time. And not only that, so you would, I think it was twice a week, you would meet from like 7 to sometimes after midnight and you were expected to keep this secret from even your your spouse if the spouse were not in school. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, we spent enormous amount of time um, uh, eventually, you know, it, didn't, it wasn't your first year, but eventually you spent an enormous amount of time, you know, uh, doing things uh, for the group. And again, why would you do that? People say to me, why did you do that? You know, well, I think, I think after folks read the book, they understand it because this is a community. Um, these are my friends. Um, and we were under the belief that the more work we did, the better it was for our inner development, for our lives. Well, and it was and like there was a there was like a dismantling of and a separation of Spencer Schneider as a you and Spencer Schneider as this right. false personality that that should not be given any credence to begin with. I think the the exactly the toughest part yeah. for me to swallow was the breaking up of families. Uh, the you know uh, Sharon telling the one woman who was 
you know, having a, a tough t- a point in her marriage, she tells her, go to Italy, have an affair, you know, or or breaking up uh, families. In your case, what she she suggested that you uh, get with your stepdaughter? What What happened? Right. Right. Well, I mean, she had, there were no boundaries, and Sharon really did like to meddle in people's lives. And it was constantly – I mean, it was always setting people up in marriages, breaking up marriages, taking children um, from one family to another if, like, a family didn't have uh, a child. I mean, I'm talking about taking, I mean, adoptions and whatnot. Right, right, right. And, and some that were not really um, – uh, uh, you know, uh, um, others other than um, coerced. Mm. But with me, um, uh, you know, I was married to somebody else who was in the group, and um, uh, you know, Sharon was opposed to her getting pregnant because she was a little older, and suggested that instead of her getting pregnant, that you know, I impregnate um, her teenage daughter who was actually 19 at the time. And this was really like the beginning of the end for me, you know. And of course, thank I didn't goodness, do anything thank as, goodness, as Spencer. Repulsive as that, right? But it kind of woke me up to like, well, you know, this is over the top, right? Um, so, and, and and so, if she had recommended that to me, I know she recommended it to others because uh, you know I get stories about this. So, in, in you know, invading in people's family life and sex life was a big part of of what Sharon and her husband were, were involved in. And, um, that's crazy stuff. So that's treating, uh, treating you know, people, that's... treating people like they're Barbie dolls, really just a note, folks, uh, a true friend only asks, uh, what of, of your time, but certainly not, uh, that much time and certainly not, um, some of the things that, that you claim were asked of you. Um, before I let right. you go, do you have any signings coming up in the area? I know you had had one um, when the book first came out in July, uh, but what does fall look like for you? And um, are you writing another book? Yeah, well, I am, you know, copies of my book at two local stores, you know, uh, Bookhampton and um, uh, Sag Harbor, Southampton Books. There are signed copies there. If somebody wants me to, you know, uh, dedicate it to you, you let me know. You can find me on Google, Spencer Schneider, and I'm happy to, like, send you a book plate and put your name on it. Um, I I do have a couple events that haven't been firmed up, but I think I'm going to be at a couple of libraries. That'll be posted on my Instagram and, you know, online and whatnot. Um, As far as another book, you know, one of the things that really helped me to survive uh, from the cult was, you know, long distance swimming, open water swimming. And so that. I'm, you know, writing about that. And also I'm a lifeguard and I'm an ocean lifeguard at, in the village of East Hampton. And so I may write a little bit about, you know, about lifeguarding and whatnot. So that's what I'm thinking about now. And, you know, um, enjoying all of the great reception I got and talking to people like you. This is just the coolest thing. Hey. So are you, and we are grateful for your time this morning. We definitely blew way past our time, uh, so I'm going to get to the tracks. We've got Lucy um, Sparrigan join the club, from the title track from her 2013 record right now. 
I'm Jenna Volpe. That was Spencer Schneider. This was the Thoughtful Thursday segment underwritten by Green Hill Kitchen. And you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Joker or the jack of all trades? Are you the queen of someone's heart? What is the value of your face? Are you here to dig for diamonds? Well, bring along your spade. It seems that life is just a gamble, so just enjoy the game. When the dice you keep on rolling takes away, what is your life? Don't give up, just try your luck. Look a snake right in the eyes. Raise the stake and show some faces round has just begun If you think outside the box there's no such thing as square one Are you born a king or a joker or the jack of all trades? Are you the queen of someone's heart? What is the value of your face? Are you here to dig for diamonds? Well bring along your spade It seems that life is just a gamble so just enjoy the game And if there's someone standing your left hand side grab them tell them everything will be all right tell them if there's someone on your right hand side grab them tell them everything will be all right because no matter which leave you wear your heart whichever way you wear your crown tomorrow is another day to turn it all around i will stop when i'm ready i'll show for now I'll keep on playing even when the game gets harder you born a king or a joker or the jack of all trades are you the queen of someone's heart what is the value of your face are you here to dig for diamonds well bring along your spade it seems that life is just a gamble so just enjoy the game
There's a band I hadn't heard before putting together the Joiners edition of The Heart for this morning. We are less than 10 minutes away from the NPR news break. That was Join the Club, a single by Beach Fuzz. And this next track, uh, one I hadn't heard, I haven't heard since fifth grade, I think it was, uh, when I bought this record. This was the first CD I'd ever owned. It was Real Big Fish's Turn the Radio Off from 96, ironically enough. It's called Join the Club, since that's where we are. We've got Patty Hanna's Join the Army, and then Ewan McCall's Join the British Army. The creation, Can I Join Your Band, on deck. After that, I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Real Big Fish, and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to the weekday morning and midnight show uh, here on WLIWFM, the heart of the East End, featuring music from all decades and genres as well as folks from all walks of life, all because of you, the listener-supporter of Long Island's only NPR radio station. You know what? I'm going to slide the creation up. Since this is about starting a band.
Ah, a little ska for you. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Real Big Fish. This is the creation, and you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. You're listening to WLIWFM NPR Radio. With Long Island Local News, I'm Gianna Volpe on WLIWFM. Locals know Tumbleweed Tuesday is dead, but looks like the New York Times got a whiff of that. They posted a headline this week which proclaims, In the Hamptons, the rich got their Labor Day, the workers kept working. Tumbleweed Tuesday, the unofficial holiday of the tourism industry on Long Island's east end, is in jeopardy. Allison Kruger of the New York Times reports that Mike Donilon, for example, has worked at restaurants on the Twin Forks uh, since he was 12. And every year, he and others in the service industry have looked forward to the day after Labor Day, called Tumbleweed Tuesday. Typically, the vacationers and second homeowners are supposed to depart, leaving the year-round residents who work in the hotels, bars, and ice cream shops to enjoy some peace and quiet. After a party reclaiming their territories, of course, quote, I remember as a kid when I was bussing tables, all the servers and bartenders would go to Montauk Highway with signs that said, see you next summer, or thank God for Tumbleweed Tuesday, he said. It's like a day to let loose, and people went all out. But because of ongoing remote work trends inspiring many people to stay in their vacation homes, 
into the cooler months, the tourist towns of eastern Long Island are still quite busy. And the notion of tumbleweed Tuesday has gone from being a beloved, robust tradition to an endangered one, I would uh, say possibly extinct. Many in the tourist industry no longer get the day off. For some, the milestone simply doesn't feel worth celebrating. Others can't risk a big night out knowing they have to report to still bustling workplaces the following day. Quote, September and October are still really lucrative. That's Mr. Donlin, 48, now the manager at Alaya Estiatorio. I think I might have butchered that name. Apologies. It's a Greek restaurant in Bridgehampton. Please let me know how to pronounce it. 631-591-7006. He added that working in the service industry can become more challenging after Labor Day because college-age employees go back to school creating a staff shortage, and we already know there is a staff shortage uh, already afoot. On Tumbleweed Tuesday 2022, the owners of the Talk House, a bar and live music venue in Amagansett, gave their 40 staff members the day off, the first one since uh, Memorial Day. Good for them. Quote, when you work in nightlife, you have to be up all the time. That's Max Honerkamp, one of the owners, who told the Times, quote, I'm sure some of the staff will hang out and go to the beach, but I think a lot will celebrate by going to bed. And the waters and offshore wind companies, as offshore wind companies scan the sea bottom in preparation for laying cables and placing turbines, some are finding a potentially deadly legacy of wartime on the coastal bed, and that's unexploded weapons. Mark Harrington reports on Newsday.com that many of the objects known as unexploded ordnance, UXO, date to the World War II era and older. When encountered, they're usually not moved or even touched, according to a rep for Sunrise Wind, a project that will feed energy to Long Island from its location off the Rhode Island coast. Orsted spokesperson Megan Wims called the finds not unusual because the survey is being conducted near old World War II training areas. In each case, she said contracted experts in unexploded ordnance assess that they do not pose an active threat, and notify the Coast Guard and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency so that the ordinances can be appropriately charted. The company has confirmed finding 11 unexploded weapons from 6-inch artillery shells to a 250-pound bomb. Federal government has acknowledged the issue and issued guidelines on munitions and explosives of concern for wind farm work, but commercial fishing advocates say the companies aren't sounding the alarm loud enough to make sure fishing captains don't mistakenly haul up the objects. Notice is not getting to people, said Megan Lapp, general manager of Sea Freeze Shoreside, a fish producer and trader based in Long, Long, Rhode Island. Excuse me. It's not. I tried to marry Rhode Island and Long Island together. Wrong Island. That is hilarious. Okay, so Megan noted she was at first made aware of one set of ordnance finds from a recreational fishing magazine. Wind companies said they proactively reached out to federal agencies and fishing groups to alert them. Uh, my chortle, certainly not about unexploded ordnance, but rather the idea of Wrong Island, which is a fantasy island I created by accident. Combining Rhode Island and Long Island. And finally, masks are not not required. And what is going on? Masks are no longer required on the LIRR and other mass transit systems in New York. 
Governor Kathy Hochul announced yesterday ending a pandemic protocol described by an MTA board member as having basically become unenforceable. As reported on Newsday.com, the shift in policy to face masks being encouraged but optional is effective immediately, coming as the state officially registers a lower level of COVID positive tests than in recent weeks, with hopes that the falling numbers could be a signal the COVID pandemic, if not yet waning, is finally becoming manageable. Quote, we have to restore some normalcy to our lives, Hochul said at a conference in Manhattan on Wednesday. The mask requirement will remain, however, in healthcare facilities, including hospitals and nursing homes. New York's uh, seven-day rolling average for positivity is pretty high, uh, 5.6 as of Monday. Experts have regarded the official numbers as an undercount, given the proliferation of at-home tests not officially reported to the state. Looking at the weather in East Hampton in honor of our next guest, Steve Long of the East Hampton Historical Society, joining us at the bottom of the hour for the Hot Sounds segment, underwritten by William Riss Gallery, looking like a mostly sunny Thursday with a high near 75 degrees. Northeast wind around 11 miles per hour. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 61. Northeast wind 7 to 10 miles per hour. Right now, it's 67 degrees, keeping the joiner edition moving. I moved um, down Patty, Hannah, and Ewan McCole a bit. We've got the, the Who, the Melodians, and Groove Armada leading us to the bottom of the hour. I'm Gianna Volpe, and you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM.
From the Who's Join Together to the Melodians, Let's Join Hands Together, to Groove Armada's Join Hands, 
See what I did there? You're listening to WLIWFM, NPR Radio. Getting ready for Steve Long to join us here on The Heart. Moving from Groove Armada's Join Hands to Petty Hanna's Join the Army. Join the British Army on deck. Ewan McColl 
I'm Jenna Volpe, and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. You're listening to WLI, WFM, NPR Radio. Patty Henna leading us to the bottom of the 10 o'clock hour just after uh, 1 o'clock. If you're listening to the replay, it is time for our Hot Sounds segment underwritten by William Riss Gallery, technically Hot Sights and Sounds. And speaking of people I saw at Authors Night, good morning, Steve Long of the East Hampton Historical Society. Welcome back to the heart. Thank you so much, Gianna. So you, we, we remember you from CME. You move over to the East Hampton Historical Society just as they're celebrating their centennial with a new exhibition. Couldn't be a, a more exciting project to get to go through 20,000 uh, objects in the Historical Society's uh, collection to select uh, top 10 treasures. Please talk a little bit about uh, delving into the collection at the Historical Society. Yeah, so we've been collecting for 100 years, and it was a tough decision to try to figure out 10 stories that we wanted to tell. But uh, uh, what, what was so fascinating is sort of these objects that had been in our collection for, for decades and had uh, history going back, you know, 100, 200, even close to 300 years in East Hampton, uh, had really uh, hidden stories to tell. Mm. Um, just to give you an example, uh, we have this red coat, 
a red broadcloth coat that was uh, worn by David Mulford, who lived at Mulford Farm, uh, whose home we interpret here in East Hampton. And uh, one of the things that was really fascinating to me is that this red coat did not mean that David Mulford was uh, a loyalist in the American Revolution. Quite the contrary. Right. He was a patriot, right. one of the leading patriots. He was a colonel in the colonial regiment, uh, really the, the head of the East Hampton Minutemen, if you will. And as in addition to fighting against British tyranny and uh, for American freedom, David Mulford was an enslaver. He had uh, what appears to be about eight enslaved people living in his house with his family while he was uh, leading his men in 1776 to head to the Battle of Long Island, which to me is a fascinating story, this intersection of kind of what, what does freedom mean? It means one thing one person, right, but another for, the, for somebody else in this very same household. And, it, you know, and how it has changed over time for, for some people. And you hear that a lot when you when you talk about uh, civil rights and, and how that uh, how that that unfolded. So why the red coat then? Was it was it to distract or, or to it was, make it was fashionable? Oh. It was fashionable, and what, what's also interesting is that it's it's made out of broadcloth, so it's a very durable kind of material, as opposed to kersey cloth, which is uh, likely the kind of material that uh, the enslaved people that lived in his household would have been wearing. So when we're in the process of reinterpreting the farm and being able to compare this broadcloth coat with the kersey cloth that is much more uh, you know, a, 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 a much less fine weave. Got it. Um, it really is, you know, typical of what working class people See, I was, are, are wearing. I was like blowing it up in my head thinking he's a minute man. So he's wearing the red to trick the British to think he was on the... <laughs> All right. So you've got, you've got East Hampton's very first telephone there. You've got the actual dynamite box that was buried by Nazi saboteurs in 1942 on the Emigansen Beach. I only just learned about this story uh, this summer, uh, reading Eve Carlin's track 61, I believe is the number. Um, what, el what else do you have there? Can you tell me about Reverend Buell's big wig? Yes, so we have the wig that belonged to uh, – East Hampton's minister, and when I say East Hampton's minister, in the 18th century, there was only one church in East Hampton. Uh, and in the late 18th century, it was Reverend Samuel Buell. And what uh, I found so fascinating learning about the wig is it is one of the only existing 18th century wigs here in the United States. Uh, you know, you, you look at all of the Photo, you know, paintings of uh, you know by John Trumbull of the founding fathers, and they're all wearing their wigs. Yes, very few of those wigs have survived. And why is In why fact, is that? Is it, is, is it because when it when uh, well, you know? Because, I mean, it, it it was made out of horse hair. Right. I mean, it made out of organic material that wasn't especially durable. Right. And uh, it's made for a particular person, uh, so that like something. Oh, hey, I'm I'm gonna I'm changing you know, my style. Have a, a, a you know, use this wig that was made by Samuel Buell. 
the, the wig is so rare that uh, about 20 or so years ago, Colonial Williamsburg was looking for a wig that they could use from the 18th century to reproduce uh, wigs today. And so they actually had our wig down at Colonial Williamsburg for uh, uh, quite a long period of time so that they could study it and try to reproduce the, the techniques that were, 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 were used back in the 18th century to make a wig. That is fantastic stuff. All right, so you, there's only five of these uh, treasures listed on the press release. What is your... Yo, so, uh, you know, we, we have uh, the, the clock uh, that you know, the, the Domini uh, family made, the whole family of, uh, of woodworkers and makers and furniture makers, and this clock is spectacular. It is uh, the clock that actually was on Gardner's Island, and it was 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 their Domini clock. It's it said that every other family on Long Island had a Domini clock. Most of them uh, you know, were were sort of veneered, you know, made to look fancier than 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 they were. Uh, maybe with a, a paper face. This has a enameled iron face on the on the clock. It's made with mahogany and cherry. Um, and it it just it's it's such a you know beautiful piece of furniture that we made right here in East Hampton. And the Dominies are so well renowned that when their house was was torn down in the 1940s, uh, the Winterthur Museum, you know, the premier decorative arts museum in the United States, they came and gathered up all of the tools and a lot of the furniture. And in fact, down in Delaware, they have recreated the Domini workshop cool. of East Hampton. So it's like the, you pretend that you go into this East Hampton workshop when you're in Delaware. The That makes me sad, though. It makes, these, it makes me sad that it's not here. Well, we're bringing it back. <gasps> Stop! The original clock-making shop and the furniture shop were still that they basically had had been used uh as as outbuildings uh i believe down on further lane and then they were uh donated back to the village and using the historical architectural building drawings from the 1940s working with the village of East Hampton we have reproduced the house and attach those original uh, workshops onto the structure so that next year we will be opening the Domini Shops Museum so oh, people can actually wow. go into the original shops and, and see the furniture and the clocks where it was actually made. And, and just down the road from Hook Mill in East Hampton, which also was made by the Domini. So really, I mean, the, the in some way are like literally the glue of East Hampton, uh, Clinton Academy, which is also a historic building interpreted by the Historical Society. The columns, when it was built in 1784, were made by the Dominies. That is an incredibly cool story. I cannot wait to be there when the Domini workshops uh, reopen. Well, we will. Uh, you will be certainly uh, getting an invitation. We, we're actually having a, uh, a, a, a sort of a, a pop-up exhibit about the Dominies uh, as part of our history festival that's taking place at 
Historic Mulford Farm at 10 James Lane in East Hampton on October 1st. Got uh, it. We're going to have the 3rd Colonial Regiment reenactors, uh, which very apropos since uh, David Mulford probably would have right, been right. having his men mustering right along James Lane as well, just as the... Uh, uh, 3rd Regiment is going to be doing on October 1st. Uh, we'll be having demonstrations, crafts, historical music, uh, historical games for kids. Uh, as, as my son likes to say, it's going to be very kid-friendly. Got it. And maybe there's uh, something that you can uh, work in there just to uh, make sure that uh, folks see um, the other side of Mulford or or see the people who lived and worked for him, uh, maybe talk to Donna Marie Barnes. Uh, what is that? that oh, the, what, well, what is it called? The, uh, Plain Sight Project, yes. which Donna Marie is, is very much involved in, is going to be there. Fantastic. Uh, we're, we're having you know, folks from the Springs Historical Society, the Montauk Historical Society, the East Hampton Farm Museum. Uh, we're, we're having folks from the, the you know, Montaukett Nation, the Shinnecock, uh, the... Uh, um, people from the uh, uh, East Hampton Trails Preservation Society. I know I'm, oh, I'm forgetting. Like, yeah, it's I, okay. I, I feel bad we'll have, I'm, I'm, Steve, we'll, I'm we'll talk. Top of my head, but we'll talk about so it again. going to be involved. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to, <laughs> we'll look ahead a month and we'll make sure uh, that you just follow up with me and we'll, we'll do something, let's say not on the day, but we'll figure something out maybe on the 30th. Uh, that's a Friday. All right. Oh, so that would that would be amazing. Before I let you go, I know we're we're already over time, but I wanted to just hear one of the five treasures that are not listed on the press release um, that are. Uh, oh, and also uh, the details for the curators tour. So the uh, the the uh, you know people are what well, we we have uh, opportunities for folks to sign up that they can take uh, a curator's uh, tour get kind of behind the scenes uh, you know there's there's exhibit copy it's both in english as as well as as being translated into spanish it it it's it's so much richer if you have the folks who developed the exhibit uh there with you, um, and you know one of the things that uh, is to me so terrific the the uh, clock that uh, was on the 1717 church uh, is in the exhibit, and one of the things that we've subsequently learned all these years back in 18, as far as back as 1866, the date of the clock was 1735. Huh? But research that we've just done in the last uh, six months or so says actually the clock was 1753 because the clockmaker was not he, in 1735 he was about uh, he was a teenager so it's obvious so it couldn't that he so hadn't it couldn't started his clockmaking business and we have been able to you know a, a, a hundred and fifty plus years we've assumed that it was one date now with this more recent research. So we're always learning. It's terrific to be able to uh, have, you know, look at this clock face that uh, was looming over Main Street uh, uh, you know, back uh, to almost 250 years ago, and you can see it. So know, wait, so wh why the, why, the, why the disparity again? So, so, it, so why was it originally? article. 
Yeah, why was it originally thought? There was a newspaper article that came out in 1866, and it talked about this, the clock, because the the church was moved, and they they talked about the the clock that had been on the church being built, uh, added to the church in 1735. It was a boo-boo. So it was part of that. That kind of got us started on this assumption about the... uh, you know, it, that's that's why uh, it's it's great to do more and more research because yeah. uh, sometimes your assumption about the past <laughs> that you've had since 1866 turns out to be not 100% correct. Love it. Love it. Doing the job of journalism in the vein of yeah. history. I'm well, John Volpe. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. It's it's you know following following up on those sources that's and right. uh, not just taking uh, one source at its word, but True. you know verify, verify. Steve Long of the East Hampton Historical Society. You can find out more at easthamptonhistory.org. I'm Gianna Volpe. That's Steve Long. This is Ewan McCall, and you, whoever you are out there, you just heard the uh, hot sights and sounds segment underwritten by William Risk Gallery. Right here on the heart of the East End, WLIWFM, NPR Radio. When I was young, I used to be as fine a man as ever you'd see. The Prince of Wales, he said to me, come and join the British Army. They're looking for monkeys up in the zoo, and if I had a face like you, I'd join the British Army. Sarah Condon baked her cakes, was all for poor old Slattery's sake. I threw myself into the lake, pretending I was balmy. Toodaloodaloodaloo, it was the only thing that I could do to work me ticket home to you and leave the British Army. Corporal Duff's got such a drought, just give him a couple of jars of stout, and he'll kill the enemy with his mouth and save the British Army. Toodaloodaloodaloo, me curses on the labour brew. They took your darling boy from you to join the British Army. Captain Ely went away and his wife got in the family way and all the words that she could say was blame the British Army. Toodaloodaloodaloo, I've made me mind up what to do. I'll work me ticket home to you and leave the British Army.
Carlton Lees can't beat him, join him after Ewan McCall's join the British Army. I'm going to hop back 40 years in time and play Warren Zevon's Join Me in L.A. from his self-titled record of 76. Uh, we've got 15 and a half minutes before the top of the hour, the NPR news break, and the end of this edition of The Heart. I want to give a deep bow to both of our guests this morning, Spencer Schneider, as well as uh, Steve Long, as well as our underwriters, Green Hill Kitchen and William Riss Gallery, and all of you, the listeners, supporters of Long Island's only NPR radio station. We are only here doing what we do for you every morning, noon, and night because of you. And for that, we salute you. Benny Goodman on deck after Warren, uh, and then we'll see what I've got left. I, I did play uh, Can't Keep Johnny Down from They Might Be Giants' Join Us record, and just because I had a bizarre dream with Johnny Depp in it, Last night I played, I have some Johnny tracks, but I don't think we're going to get to it. That's all right. Uh, join me in L.A. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Warren Zevon. You, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to WLIWFM.
All right, so we can't fit in Peggy Lee's Johnny Guitar, which is a bummer because I love that track. But we will lead you into the NPR News break with They Might Be Giants, Can't Johnny Down from the Join Us record, and Chad and Jeremy's No Tears for Johnny here on the Heart of the East End. WLIWFM. Tears for Johnny, people don't you cry, no tears for Johnny. 
Just because he's gonna die, he's gonna be a hero from now till the end of time. So shed no tears for Johnny Boy, marching in the thin red line. When the drums begin to roll, trumpets start to blow. Johnny must not reason why he knows he's gonna go. Fight for power and glory, Johnny go to war. And if a hundred boys should die, we can send in a hundred more.